Well, welcome, everybody. Just the other day, I was uh, flipping through Facebook, flipping, I was sliding with my phone, and a friend of mine, that's, a, that's dramatic, a person I know, <laughs> so rude, I always consider that my job, both tell people about Jesus and also mildly insult them from the stage. Uh, a, person, a person I know had just posted on Facebook that they had been accepted into a society. Now, I feel like as soon as you say you've been accepted into a society, that just brings so much like Illuminati baggage with it. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? And it was a very specific society. And so I was like, I'm going to go... I'm going to go look it up. What is this thing that this person has just been accepted to? So I pulled it up on the website, and this is what the website says. This society was founded in 1946 by two people who had the idea of forming a society for bright people. Um, I'm so glad that you're, you, you laughed, because as soon as I read that, I was like, what in the world? I like started losing my mind. So they started forming a society for bright people. The only qualification for membership was a high IQ. The society, though, welcomes people from all walks of life whose IQ is in the top 2%. The objective is enjoying each other's company and participating in a wide range of social and cultural activities. Yeah, as soon as I read that, I lost my mind. The phrase society for bright people has got to be the most pretentious slash condescending phrase I've ever heard. It's like, we're not better than you, we're just brighter than you. It's way different. And so, because I hate myself, I just kept reading the website. <laughs> and I came to the question, what kind of people are members? And here's their very cute response. There is simply no one prevailing characteristic of our members other than high IQ. I should have stopped, but I just kept moving through the website, and I came to this moment, which is where I did have to close the whole thing down. The question is, what does the club's name mean? And here is their answer. Our name means table in Latin. We are a round table society where race, color, creed, national origin, age, politics, education, or social background are irrelevant as long as you're smart. Table? There is a theology of table existing within this Illuminati society that is fundamentally antithetical to the theology of table we receive in Jesus. So fundamentally different. But I think the thing that started making me so mad as I was reading this is that that notion of table, that it is a place for people if they meet some kind of criteria, is not just true of weird private societies, but is also so often the prevailing story of the church. That we become a place of table for you if. Now, if you've been with us for a while, even like a week, you've probably heard us talk about table. We have one right in the middle of our gathering space. We use the language of table, the symbol of table, because we believe that God uses the language and symbol of table. In the Old Testament, God gives his people meals to remember him, celebrations to be formed into his people. 
He gives them meals and parties to practice being his people. So at the very center of Old Testament Israel is table. When you come into the New Testament, Jesus uses the language of table, wedding, feast, party to describe his kingdom work and his people. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he institutes a meal around a table to be practiced by the church. And Revelations, the final book, is full of language of parties, tables, celebrations. So all throughout this story, you have a picture that God's kingdom and his work, it is like a table or a party or a feast. And these different images of table, they're supposed to form in us a sense for what it means to be God's people. This is how his people lick. This is how his people act. This is how they gather together. This is what makes them distinct is their practice of this kind of table. We understand Jesus's work to be table work. And that forms in us an imagination for our work. We understand the hope of Jesus to be something of a table. And that forms our hope. But the trick is, just because we have an image of table does not mean that we have an image of the kingdom. And just because we're throwing parties does not mean that we are throwing parties like Jesus, because often we can throw parties for everyone if they meet some kind of criteria. Like that society, we have a table. We say that we are centered on a round table where everyone is welcome if. This happens all throughout the biblical narrative. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes in part because the table practice has become exclusionary. And he's like, oh yeah, you've actually stopped doing church when this has happened. If your table is exclusive, it's not table. It's something else. In the Old Testament, God says he hates religious feasting because it is empty, meaning that it has forgotten people, that it has been, become exclusive. And when that happens to our table, it stops being Jesus' table and becomes something different, something other. And we see in Mark chapter 6 a picture of these two different tables. Two different parties that are centered on two different theologies of table and party and world. In one moment, you have a party that is thrown by King Herod. And in the other, you have a party and a table that is set by Jesus. And I think if we just ask a few questions of these moments, it'll very quickly reveal how distinct they are. So I'm going to ask four questions of these two different parties. First, what is the purpose of the party? Two, who is invited to the party? Three, how are the guests treated once they get there? And four, how do the guests leave the party? I think in answering these four questions, we'll start to get a sense of what is the difference between Herod's table and Jesus' table, between the table that we so often force onto our table. And so let's start with the first one. What is the purpose of the party? To answer that question, it might be helpful to have just a little bit of context of who Herod is. So Herod is the current ruler of Galilee under Rome. So that's the district where Jesus lives. He's not the Herod from earlier in the gospel stories. This is his son who has one-fourth of his kingdom. So there was Herod the Great, who was at the beginning of the story. He dies. Rome cuts the kingdom into four pieces and gives it to different sons. And Herod, in this moment, is one of those sons. He has a weird relationship to 
people. I was thinking of other words to say, and I was like, mm, all of them will get me in trouble. So let's just say he's a weird relationship with people. He is originally married to a different woman who leaves him basically because he falls in love with his niece slash sister-in-law. So he marries his niece slash sister-in-law. His original wife leaves him, and that just sets the tone for how strange his relationship to people is. He wanted to be king so much that he would actually spend a lot of his time petitioning Rome to make him king. And this doesn't happen in this story. This happens post-Jesus. But eventually, Rome gets so tired of Herod's petitioning that they exile him to Gaul, which is in Europe. That's very far from Galilee. So you have a picture of a person who has dedicated himself to getting more. He comes from wealth and power and all of the traditional levers of power, and he spends all of it on the accumulation of more without concern for other people, without concern for others, without concern for his wife, for his brother, for his sister-in-law slash wife, without concern for his niece, without concern for John, which means that he very quickly gets a reputation in the world for being that way, and he is not loved by the people around him. In fact, he accumulates power so aggressively that it will eventually turn on him and his own career. So this is the person who is throwing the first party. And in Mark 6, verse 21, Mark starts to use some language that I think is very helpful to understand the purpose of Herod's party, this person who's dedicated himself to accumulation. It says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. We'll talk about that opportunity more in a second, but the purpose of Herod's party is to get his. In fact, everybody enters into the party hoping to control it and hoping to achieve their own end. Herod hopes to fulfill his own desires, so much so that he'll allow his niece slash great-niece slash stepdaughter, she's all three of those things, to dance for him. The nobles will work to appease the king. Herodias will try to kill John the Baptist. Everyone enters into that moment with their agenda, something they're hoping to achieve, some way to control the moment. And that is the nature of Herod's table. It is not about God. It is not about others. It is always about the self. It is always about the self. In this moment, it looks like murder and strange sexuality. In 1 Corinthians, it looks like not sharing with the poor. In our own lives, it looks like any moment, our agenda or our interests or our ambition becomes priority over others. Any moment that our agenda subsumes the table, it actually stops being Jesus's table and becomes Herod's table. Now contrast that with the second party in the story. Because following the story of Herod, you have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And Jesus, with his disciples, they enter into a desolate space after a long period of teaching, and they're seeking to rest. But crowds gather after him, as they tend to do. And this is how Jesus responds in 6, verse 34. He says, and we went, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now that metaphor is really important to Jesus. Shepherd language is Israel's primary metaphor for leadership. 
Kings and priests were all called shepherds of God's people. Herod was supposed to be a shepherd of God's people. And the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel gives a very good definition of what shepherds are supposed to do while criticizing them. He says this, chapter 34, he says, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So when Jesus says sheep without a shepherd, he's aiming that at the leadership of Israel currently, Herod, the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes. And he's saying instead of your power being with and to and for, you have exercised power over. Your table, your party, your feasting, it should have been about feeding and healing and caring, and instead it has become about your own selfish ambition. Shepherds existed to lead the people to green pastures, into hospitable spaces, but instead you have created inhospitable environments. So what is the purpose of the table? Well, for Herod, it's for himself, but for Jesus, that purpose is always for others. It is to be a space of hospitality that feeds people, that strengthens the weak, that heals the sick, that bounds the injures, that brings the strayed back home, that seeks the lost. That's the purpose of Jesus' table, to be a space of hospitality. So what is the purpose of the table? to be a space of hospitality. Now, it gets us to the second question. Well, who is invited to that table then? In verse 21, we get a very simple answer to who's invited to Herod's party. It says, Herod gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. So Herod's party is exclusive. It exists only for the powerful and only for men. Contrast that to Jesus' party, where in verse 33, it says many came running towards him. In verse 34, it says they formed a large crowd. And in verse 44, it says that 5,000 men were there, which is only representative of households. And so there's probably five to 15,000 people that are gathered at Jesus' party. The contrast, these stories are put next to each other. The contrast is so dramatic. You have this one moment, which is exclusive and for an exclusive community of people. And in this next moment, it's just a rabble of anyone who sees Jesus and is hungry. One is for an exclusive group. The other is for anyone. That contrast is so massive, in fact. I feel like it forces us to ask other questions. And the primary one that I think about when I see this is, how does Jesus do math? Right, and here's what I mean. In some ways, Herod's logic is so normal. Like, it is so normal to say, like, okay, here's a table. Like, we were at a dinner party last night. There was, like, 26 seats at the table. If 5,000 people showed up, it would have been a problem. So there's a normal logic to how you think about a party. You're like, oh, I have so many seats, I have so much food, I have so many resources to provide food for those people, so I actually have to be exclusive in how I invite people to my party and how I think about the spending of resources. You have to choose sparingly who to invite, 
who to not invite. And the disciples, they're operating on this same kind of logic. In verse 37, they ask Jesus this question. Jesus tells them, he says, hey, give these people something to eat. And the disciples said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? Should we go buy food for five to 15,000 people? Like, how are we ever going to do that? There is a math issue here. There's a resource issue here. There is an economic issue here. We don't have that much to spend. But something about Jesus counts just weird. Because he asked them, he said, hey, what do, you, what do you have? And so they gather together and they find five loaves and two fish. And we know this story really well. Jesus takes these limited resources and he makes food for five to 15,000 people. See, where everyone else sees generosity as a loss, Jesus always sees generosity as making more. Where we see inviting too many people to the party as cost, Jesus always sees it as multiplying. Where we see giving away power or privilege or position as cost, Jesus always sees it as increasing power. His economics are just different. He says, you count this way, you think this way, you think about money and your resources and your time and your energy and what you bring to a conversation in this way. And then he shows us a different economy altogether, an economy that takes five loaves and two fishes and makes food for 10,000 people. And he says, that's actually how the kingdom works. That's what the table is. It is a place that multiplies. So I think the hardest part about Jesus' table, and he's actually inviting us into a different kind of math, a different economics, Jesus' table is not simply about being more kind, though that's important. It's not simply about good intentions. It's not simply about being nice. It's not simply about your own kind of like personal approach to people. It is actually about seeing the world differently, about gaining a different vision entirely. Herod's table counts one way. Jesus' table counts a different way. And Jesus' cable counts in a way that invites everyone. But Herod's doesn't. Because it costs too much to have that many. So who is invited? Well, it depends on your math. Now that leads to the next question, which is how are the guests treated if they're invited? Well, at Herod's party, there's these interesting details that I think... Well, especially in the Gospel of Mark, they're very revealing because he doesn't often give this many details. But in this moment, he gives details that are important to revealing what happens to people. The first, Herodias, who is Herod's wife slash sister-in-law slash niece, wants John's head. But Herod likes John. I think that's like a fascinating transition. Herod likes John. It says in the text that Herod feared John knowing that he was righteous and holy, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him 
gladly. So Herod actually likes John. This is a person that he likes listening to, and he keeps him safe where his wife doesn't. So on his birthday, Herodias sees an opportunity to get what she wants. So she sends in her daughter to dance for a group of grown men. Now this girl is Herod's niece, great-niece, and stepdaughter. She fills all of those roles in this moment. And Herod, so enthralled by her, tells her that she can have anything that she wants. So she, at the beckon of her mother, asks for John's head, but adds of her own accord on a platter. Herod doesn't want to do that. But finally, because of the pressure of his guests, gives in. And so John is killed. These details are so fascinating because no one leaves the party looking good at all. Everyone, even the most vulnerable people at this party, the people that you would name as a victim, like the daughter, everyone is compromised and complicit in what happens at the party. Herod, Herodias, the guests, his niece, John, all of them lose their humanity in this party. Everyone is objectified. Everyone is used. Everyone is exploited. And everyone is made less of by the party. So everyone is dehumanized. And then everyone's intentions, those things that you're, you enter into the party with hoping to achieve, they all get subsumed and used for something else. So Herod has good intentions towards John. That's the craziest moment to me of the story. Like, he's not simply the ultimate bad guy. He likes John. And yet, his good intentions for John are subsumed and wielded against him. So even the good intentions are subsumed. Herodias and her daughter are vulnerable and victims in this moment of Herod's power, and yet they also are subsumed. Herodias wants John's head And her daughter adds on a platter, no one is simply victims in this moment. So people are dehumanized, others are subsumed into some kind of system. And then worst of all, John, who is locked in prison, silenced but liked, is consumed by the party. He pays the greatest price of all and is totally consumed. See, at Herod's party, people are dehumanized, they are subsumed, and they are consumed. And that enters into the next question, which is how do they leave the party? Well, the powerful in that moment, they leave empty and complicit, and John doesn't leave at all. So the weak are consumed. That's Herod's table. And it stands in such stark contrast to Jesus' party, where the guests are treated not simply to a meal, but to communion with the living God. There's these verbs that show up in Jesus' party, where he takes the fish and the loaf, he takes them, he blesses them, he breaks them, and he gives them. Those four verbs show up again at another meal that Jesus lays for his followers. Where he takes the bread, he blesses it, He breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. Signs and gestures of the way that he himself will be broken and given for his people. To make room for them that cost to himself. So that they may enter into the communion of the living God and be satisfied at the table. 
When that happens, the exact opposite thing that happens at Herod's party happens. Your humanity is not lost. You are not subsumed or consumed. Your humanity is given back, and you are invited into the fullness of life that Jesus promises. So how are the guests treated at Jesus' party? Well, instead of being dehumanized or subsumed or consumed, they are invited into the presence of the king where they find their true humanity. And how do they leave that party? Well, they don't leave complicit or empty. The text says they leave satisfied. Monsieur, there are always two tables. Herod's and Jesus's. There are always two tables. Two tables that we ourselves are kind of like envisioning about our own lives. Two tables that we're practicing. Two tables that we are inviting other people to. What table do you believe that you have been invited to? What table do you believe that you have been invited to? Is it a table that welcomes you if? Is it a table that is exclusive? Is it a table that is limited? Is it a, is it a table that counts out of scarcity? Or do you believe that you have been invited to Jesus' table? Which believes that the more, the more. Which always makes room which always seeks the lost, which always bounds the sick, which always feeds the hungry, what table do you believe that you have been invited to? Monsieur, what kind of math do you believe in? How do you count? Do you think about your own life? How do you count? Is there a limit to the resources that God has given you? Is there a limit to the love that God has called you into? Is there a limit to positions at the table? How do you do math? Or do you believe in a table that is set by God that is always overflowing? Do you believe in a math that actually makes more from less, not the other way around? So how do you count? It matters because it enters into this third question, which is, then what kind of party are you inviting people into? The church is intended to be a, a people of hospitality. The table is at the center of our lives, not just symbolically, but in all of our practices. It's intended to be the center of our lives. So what are we inviting them into? What kind of table? Because if we're inviting them to Herod's table, you should just stop. You see what happens to people? What kind of table do you invite them to? This is a quote by a theologian named Letty Russell. She's just brilliant. And she says this about hospitality. She says, we see over and over and over again that the witness of the church is rooted in a life of hospitality. When communities who have sought to gain identity behind particular walls, they, they try to figure themselves out in exclusion, find themselves broken open by the gospel's invitation of hospitality. Monsieur, that is the, that's the thing that's on the table right now. Are we going to be broken open by the gospel's invitation to hospitality, or are we going to actually close up even further? Jesus wants to break open our community with the gospel invitation of hospitality. And that leads to the final question, which is this. Is this as Jesus is breaking open our community, 
how are we going to respond? How do we respond to that? Right now, we can respond by receiving it, by coming to this table, the table that Jesus is inviting us to. All are welcome. But the sick are bound up, the hungry are fed, where the lost are sought. You can come to this table and receive it now, and then you can respond by leaving this place. Scent is a community of new math and new hospitality. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you always continue to lay a table and then to invite us to it. No matter how often we lay a different table or how often we leave your party and go to another party or how often we are enticed by other kinds of parties, no matter how often that happens to us, you continue to lay your table and call us towards it. So Jesus, today as we hear the invitation, would we respond? Even if we've responded a thousand times, would we respond to the invitation of gospel hospitality, know it in our own heart, and be shaped into that kind of people? So Jesus, help us to know it here as we gather on your table, to touch and taste and see and practice your hospitality and then form us into that kind of people. Lord, be with us and shape us. In your name we pray. Amen.